Good morning. Hard to get out this morning, wasn't it? You know, I heard, I heard about this couple. They got up in the morning. The fellow looks at his wife and says, I'm not going to church today. She says, oh, you're not? He said, no way. I'll give you three reasons. One, it's cold out there. Two, the people don't like me. And three, I don't like them either. She took a look at him. She says, oh, you're going. He goes, give me a good reason. First, because you're 55 years old, and second, because you're the pastor. <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> hey, Pastor Morgan, how you doing today? You know, seeing you this morning kind of made me think of something. Every time that guy talks about Sunday, you know what Pastor Morgan calls Sundays? Resurrection Day. I learned that from you. I learned that every time we get up on Sunday morning to come to church, we're reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was in the grave for three days, and he rose in power, and we come to worship a living Savior. That's good stuff. It's Resurrection Day, and I'm glad you're here. Last Sunday, Pastor Steve was using an illustration at the end of a naval conflict between France and Great Britain. I love that illustration, so we're just going to incorporate that in today. If you recall what he said, there was a naval conflict, and then in the end, Lord Nelson and the British troops won the battle. The French general was boarding Lord Nelson's ship to surrender officially. As he boarded the ship in his full regalia, he walked up to Lord Nelson with his hand out, and Lord Nelson, with great aplomb, simply looked at him and said, First, sir, your sword. Surrender your sword, then your hand. This is a day that our churches recognize as a Sanctity of Life Day, the third Sunday each January. And perhaps there's no greater need for a humble submission to our Lord than when we speak of areas where we talk about privacy or intimacy in our lives, where people are making decisions every day about what is right morally and what is wrong. What's our authority? Where is our truth from? And that's why that's such a fitting illustration for us today. January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States of America legalized abortion on demand, at least in the first trimester, in all 50 states in the United States. January 13, 1984, President Reagan issued a proclamation designating January 22nd as the first Sanctity of Human Life Day. And if you were to stop and pause a moment, think about that. Think about the fact that we would need a statement saying that human life has value. But it became a necessity. And secondly, President Reagan had the political courage to do it. Have any of you, and I, I am curious in a show of hands, how many of you have ever read that proclamation of President Reagan's? You have now, it's on the screen. <laughs> so, uh, that is the actual proclamation written by President Reagan, and I would like this morning, if you would allow it, to, we'll just read that proclamation through. It's worth reading. 
The values and freedoms we cherish as Americans rest on the fundamental commitment to the sanctity of human life, the first of the unalienable rights affirmed by our Declaration of Independence is the right of life itself. A right, the Declaration states, has been endowed by our Creator on all human beings, whether young or old, weak or strong, healthy or handicapped. Since 1973, however, more than 15 million unborn children have died in legalized abortions. A tragedy of stunning dimensions that stands in sad contrast to our belief that each life is sacred. These children, over tenfold the number of, of Americans lost in all our nation's wars, will never laugh, never sing, never experience the joy of human love, nor will they strive to heal the sick or feed the poor or make peace among nations. Abortion has denied them the first and most basic of human rights, and we are infinitely the poorer for it. We are poorer not simply for lives not led and for contributions not made, but also for the erosion of our sense of worth and the dignity of every individual. To diminish the value of one category of human life is to diminish us all. Slavery, which treated blacks as something less than human, to be bought and sold if convenient, cheapened human life and mocked our dedication to the freedom and equality of all men and women. And can we say that abortion, which treats the unborn as something less than human, to be destroyed if convenient, will be less corrosive to the values we hold dear? We have been given the precious gift of human life, made more precious still by our births in or pilgrimages to a land of freedom. It is fitting then, on the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision in Road v. Wade that struck down state anti-abortion laws, that we reflect anew on these blessings and on our corresponding responsibility to guard with care the lives and freedoms of even the weakest of our fellow human beings. Now therefore I, Ronald Reagan, President of the United States of America, do hereby proclaim Sunday, January 22nd, 1984, as National Sanctity of Human Life Day. I call upon the citizens of this blessed land to gather on that day in homes and places of worship, to give thanks for the gift of life, to reaffirm our commitment to the dignity of every human being and the sanctity of each human life. In witness thereof, I hereunto set my hand this 13th day of January in the year of our Lord, 1984, and the independence of the United States of America, the 208th. And it was signed by Ronald Reagan. And it is a wonderful statement. We are a generation that have lost our children. I believe there was a great tragedy that happened in 1973 for the Supreme Court of the United States of America made a moral decision, not a legal decision. If you were to look up the legal conversations regarding Roe versus Wade, they will tell you that it was one of the worst legally decision written in history. It had no legal value. They simply took a moral case and made it law. And in doing so, they took a moral fiber of our nation and they tore a hole in it. And that hole has widened. And if we were to doubt that, turn on your TV tonight and you'll find that life is very cheap. Our churches continue to recognize the third Sunday in January as the Right to Life Sunday, January 15th being the date this year. 
and I will make one correction to Mr. Reagan's statement. Since 1973 through January 4, 2016, and I don't have this year's stats, there have been 58 million, let's put that on the screen, there 58,586,256 abortions in the United States of America. 58,586,256. And I believe we are in a great tug of war in this nation for the lives of our infants, and we are outnumbered and we are outmanned in worldly terms. But we stand on the rock of ages, and if I'm going to have a tug of war, I want, I want to be standing on the rock of ages. We will pull back against abortion, we will pull back if it takes 30 years or 50 years or 100 years. We will fight for the precious gift of life which our God has given us. Some folks make an intellectual argument for choice or for privacy, and my answer is give that right to 58,586,256 souls. Give them the same right. Today we invite you into Judges. The book of Judges in the Old Testament, chapter 2. Last week we ended Joshua. That makes this week a transition week of sorts. I am truly a person who loves to take a book of the Bible and go verse by verse and take it for the next six years and talk about it. <laughs> I'm that guy. Having said that, this is more of a big picture message and we're going to talk a little bit in Judges chapter 1 and Judges chapter 2 as we, as we trans... As, as, we, as we go from that glorious book of victory, and Joshua, if anything, was a book of victory. And it ends with a declarative statement that was amazing, wasn't it? Choose you this day who you will serve, whether the gods of, and he goes through all these ites, and he ends up saying, as for me and my house, we will what? What do you say? We will serve the Lord. In this church, as we come to worship, we are the group that has said, we're going to serve the Lord. That's why you're here. That's why you came out on, an, on, on one of those chilly days. You came out because you're committed. Because somewhere in your heart, you have decided that you're going to follow the Lord. This nation was, in fact, founded with people who believed the same. Many of our founders, the states themselves were religious institutions as much as they were state institutions. For better or worse, we believed in Almighty God. We believed in His Holy Word. At the end of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 31, and you'll see it repeated again in Judges chapter 1, the Bible tells us this. It tells us how great a messenger Joshua really was. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And folks, if Pastor Steve were to retire and history recorded that all the days of his leadership, all the people who came to church walked with the Lord, that man's going to leave with a legacy that would make angels sing. Unfortunately, Joshua did die, and the elders who were with him died. And as you move into the, book of Judges, into the book of Judges, we find that key verse, that verse that everyone is familiar with, way at the end of Judges. Judges 21, 25 says these words, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. 
You ended in Joshua with people saying, we will serve the Lord. We end in Judges saying, as long as it was convenient. As long as it felt okay to me. But when it stopped feeling okay to me, I'm going to figure out some other way to live life. I'm going to do what feels good to me. And as Pastor Steve was so great at emphasizing last week, let's ask that question. What do we call that? And we call those gods. The authority in my life is the God of my life. And if I declare myself to be my own authority, then I am my own God. If I declare the television set to be my own, someone on TV to tell me how to live life, that person is my God. If I declare a a book that I picked up in the local library, a very well-meaning book to tell me how to live my life, that becomes a God. When I take the Holy Bible and the Holy Spirit opens his word to me, That is when I am truly following my God. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Joshua 21, 25. There was no king in Israel. That's a sad statement, folks, because Israel had a king. Israel had a king. They were designed as a theocracy. The living God was their king. They would follow him. I'm not quite into this message yet, believe it or not. <laughs> we'll get there. But let me tell you something. Every church in America, your Baptist church, you have a king. His name is Jesus. He lives and reigns in heaven. He is your God. He's your king. He's your authority. He is the one who we come to worship. And that word worship has a very root meaning that means to fall on your face and only see him. And you know the problem with that? Oh, it's hard to keep him Lord of our life. Especially when I kind of question it. And I have to make a decision. How will I then live? Sanctity of Human Life Day forces me, as many of the decisions facing us in America today, to a decision. Who's my authority? Who's my real king? Israel had no king. They rejected God as their king. They would not allow him to rule over them. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Proverbs 21.2 says this, Everyone thinks he's right, but the Lord judges the heart. You can think whatever you want, but there is an authority in life, and it is the living God. By the time Judges ends and we get to 1 Samuel, the Lord even said it out loud, They have rejected me as king. They don't want me? Fine. I'll give them exactly what they want. I'll give them an earthly king and watch them struggle. You want to be God of your own life? Fine. Just don't blame the living God when you make a mess of things. Joshua chapter 2 is a dire morning. The nations that take the word of God and dilute it. They haven't shucked it. They did as Pastor Steve said so well last week took it as one of their guides, and replaced it with other authorities in their life. God had birthed Israel as he birthed America in the fires of grace, and he delivered us from the yoke of oppression. And he did exactly that with Israel, but they would not follow the Lord. And folks, as a result, we see the last days coming. For in the last days, perilous times will come, and the first result of the last days are this, people love themselves. 
And they lose the love for God and for each other. And it shows in every area of their life. Judges, chapter 2, verse 2. Judges, chapter 1. Let me just, just flip right through that for a quick introduction. The first part of Judges 1 is interesting. As you read through Judges, chapter 1, each of the tribes of Israel had come in as a nation. They had conquered the land of Canaan. They conquered Palestine in modern language. And then they all were split up into their, let's call them states, their 11 states. And they were told, as you split up and go home, finish conquering your part of the land. If you need help, we'll all get together and help each other out. But you go complete the job in your own hometown now. Right? Judges chapter 1, the first part of that chapter, they did exactly that. You'll see, you'll see one group after another going to their hometown, and they're conquering the people who were there. And right in the middle of the chapter, you see a change. I think Judah was the first one. And what it says is, they were supposed to conquer Jerusalem, but they chose not to. It is one going to do it. From there till the rest of the chapter, you see a group of people not doing what God asked them to do. And I don't blame them. And in really true human terms, I have just spent years fighting wars. And now I got to go home. I've been allowed to go home. I've been allowed to set up my house. I've been allowed to plant my garden. I've been allowed to get out in the fields and start planting some. I've been allowed to be at peace for a little while. Do you know how much effort it is to go out and fight again? I think these people were tired of fighting. And I think sometimes people mean well, but they simply get a little worn out. Somewhere in all of this, they quit doing what God asked them to do. So by the time you get into Judges chapter 2, verse 2, God asks a question. And his question was, what have you done? What have you done? I don't even think they knew they had fallen so far. I think it snuck up on them. And he asked that question. He said, you're not to make a covenant with the people who are living in this land. You are supposed to be tearing down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What have you done? I would ask that question for 48 million plus children. What have we done? I would ask that question for a group of people who are the good people, who are the ones who come to church in the ice, yay, you. <laughs> you know what, we did good, guys. And yes, we can feel very smug toward the others. I love that. Thanks, Pastor Darrell. <laughs> I love that permission. Having said that, how many opportunities have we missed? When he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe everything whatsoever I've commanded you. Look, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. How many opportunities have we missed? Because we just kind of had other things to do. 
How many times has God said, you know what? I've got this really cool job for you today. Let's go get it. And we step back and said, I'm not sure. Maybe next week. There's a lesson in Judges chapter 2 that speaks to me that gets even beyond the abortion issue, that gets all the way down to my life and the church that says, yeah, I'm the good guy. I'm the guy coming to church. I'm the guy trying. But sometimes I think we can fall into sin a little bit at a time until you reach that point where God says, what have you done, guys? Let's, let's get it right with me. Remember the first time you saw those words, what have you done in the Bible? I'll take you all the way back to Genesis. Cain killed his brother, Abel. And then God said, where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God looked at Cain and he said, what have you done? The blood of your brother cries out for me from the ground. What have you done? And I will take this moment to talk about this sanctity of human life day to say this. God is the creator of life. Right? God made man in his own image. In the image of God made he man. Male and female created he them. And God took Adam and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And every single person, every breath they take is a gift from God. It was because God loves life. Cain thought he had the authority to take a life because of his anger, because of his jealousies, his peak. And God said, no. The blood of those we spill cry out to God. And I'll even go as far as to say this. You can go all the way to the end of the Bible. And if you're into the revelation of St. John, a whole bunch of people get killed during the tribulation period who believe in God. You know where they are when you find them in, in Revelation? Sitting right underneath the throne of God. They're sitting literally under his throne saying, how long before we're avenged? You want to know when the true judgments of the tribulation time come? When God says now. It's kicked off with the blood of martyrs. God takes life seriously. God loves life. And he holds those accountable who take life. Genesis chapter 25, 21, Psalm 139, 13, Jeremiah 1, 5, verses that tell us that before you're even born, God knows your name, knows everything about you. We are created in the image of God. Exodus 20, 13 says you do not take a life of a child to pay for the crimes of a parent. Leave them alone. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. John chapter 8, verse 44, and the devil loves company. Second Corinthians 2.11 will say this. Folks will fall for Satan's schemes and 2 Corinthians 11.14 say people will call right wrong and wrong right and defend the morally indefensible. And I see Almighty God occasionally in heaven with a tear in his eye asking that question 
What have you done? Judges 2 suggests some answers for us. First, sin must be crushed, not compromised. It is easy to compromise. A lot easier than to struggle. Israel had an opportunity to go to their respective homes and to complete the conquest of a land, but they compromised. And I asked myself that question again. How many Christians have been baptized? Standing before God and standing before a group and pledging that I have died to myself and I will live for Jesus and began to make compromises. Not on purpose. We just sort of fall into it. It's hard to love God and love our neighbors every day. <laughs> it really is. What if I choose to compromise? What if I choose not to subjugate the land? We have a modern illustration of that. In 1948, Israel was put together again as a modern nation. Right square in the middle of Palestine. The one thing they all forgot to do was say what to do with the indigenous people who were living there. And if you don't deal with the people who were living there, and you try to say, I'm going to put another nation on top of you, you know what you have? 80 years of conflict. Imagine that. And that is exactly what happened to Israel and what happened in their history. From this point on till the rest of the book, you're going to find Israel fighting a group of people who they did not subjugate when they were told to. Because you cannot live with Canaan. And Christians cannot live in sin and they cannot live in compromise and expect the blessings of God. They will fight every day of their life and they will ask that question, why? And God will say, because you have been disobedient and you will not come back to me. And I am telling you, you need to choose. You need to choose. You must choose this day who you will serve. And if you do not, you will pay a price. And don't blame me. It's your choice. Numbers chapter 33, 51 through 56. You will be my instrument of justice. You will drive out the inhabitants of the land. Why didn't they? Judges chapter 1, verse 19 will give you one reason they didn't. They were afraid. They were scared. Because once the army broke up and they became individual fighting forces, they were much smaller. And some of those cities were fortified and some of those people were very large. There were still giants in the land, and it's scary to fight a giant. They were simply afraid. It says so, right, in verse, verse 19. And fear has two sides. And I want to mention this because one thing on here is very important to me. It is hard to stand on life issues, by the way. It is hard to stand for life in the United States of America because you will be the bad guy. People will say you're intolerant. People will say you're just a religious bigot. People will say they'll take right wrong and wrong right and say you are a horrible human being and no one wants to have that label. It's frightening to stand by yourself amongst a group of people who disagree with you. But I want to tell you a second part of life that really matters. A number of years ago, it was a very quiet evening, and there was a young lady who was sitting out there crying all by herself. 
And I went and sat down and talked to her a minute and said, what's wrong? Now, this lady was actually the director of a mission, of all things. Now, I knew this lady. I knew her very well. But I did not know some of this story. She grew up on a mission field. Her parents were very strict missionaries. She got old enough to go to college. She came back to the stage. She went to college, and she went on her, like, wilding tour. This is her chance to do all the stuff her parents had denied her her whole life. And she went wild. Part of that, she ended up pregnant. She ended up a single mom pregnant out all by herself in the U.S. And you know what she did? You know why she was crying? She had her abortion. And she had her abortion, and as she sat and cried, she said, sometimes I sit at night and I wonder what my baby would have looked like. Would it have been a boy or girl? Does God possibly have a way to forgive me? That's the easy answer. Of course God forgives you. A lot harder to forgive yourself. Why'd she do it? She was scared to death of her parents. And even more scared of her church. And she ended up with nowhere to go. You see, in those days, if you told your church, you know what they do to a pregnant girl? Well, they'll drag you right up in front of the church, make you apologize to them for being a sinner. You want to see some stones? There's some self-righteous Sinners in a group of church who just think, man, this is our chance to show these poor kids how tough and cool we are for God. And they destroy young people who are no more a sinner than they were. It just shows. <laughs> she couldn't talk to her parents. She couldn't talk to her church. She did the only thing she could think of to do. She had an abortion. Nearly 30 years later, her parents both dead, and they never knew. She never married. She never had another kid. They never knew they could have been grandparents. She was scared till the day they died to tell them. And if you were to ask me, who was to blame for that abortion? I start with her parents. I assign blame to her church, and she is way down the list. Because they put such fear into her that they could not could not give her a way out. Fear will destroy you. As a church, we need to stand for what's right. We need to stand for righteousness. Whatever we do, we remember that we're all sinners saved by grace, and when somebody makes a mistake, we lift them up and we love them through it. But we are not the people who throw stones. These are hospitals. These aren't places where we harm people. Fear can scare people into sin. Verses 27 through 30, there were Canaanites. Not only did they fear, but they favored. If I drive them out of the land, I get their land. If I let them stay, I get their taxes. I like money. And so they didn't do their job. They went from fear to favor. 
I was reading some online comments regarding this whole abortion issue and some of the conflict. And some of the guys on the abortion side were saying, nobody favors abortion. We favor choice. We favor privacy. And that's where compromise will get you every time. Every single time. You can talk your way into favoring whatever you like. <laughs> In the end, you have to decide something. Am I going to do what I like or am I going to do what God says? Hopefully they're the same, but where they are different and you need to choose. Particularly in the moral decisions that face our country today, you must choose for God. Because if you don't, who else is going to do so? Third, Verses 32 and 33 of chapter 1 in Judges, it says there were Canaanites they frequented. They made friends, and it was hard to be crossed with their friends. I like my friends. I like having my friends. I like for them to like me. And so I do not wish to hurt their feelings. So, you know, yeah, we'll keep their idols. Yes, we'll keep some of their customs. And we'll all just get along. Folks, you cannot decide to surrender on values that have to do with the Lord Jesus Christ because your friends will be disappointed in you. you got to choose. You have to choose every single time. And sometimes it'll break your heart. But in the end, you can love them right back to Jesus. But if they see you as somebody who wavers, they see you as somebody who's willing to give in, they know what you believe isn't really what you believe. Then you lose them forever. Stand for what's right. Do it nicely. See what God can do. 1960, a poll was taken. One of those Gallup polls. And what it said was that 65% of Americans believe the Bible was the inerrant inspired word of God. Nationally, across America in 1965, 65% of our nation said they believed in the Bible. 32% said the same thing in 1992. In one generation, we lost. We lost the battle. And part of that reason was people who said they believed in the Bible didn't stand in the word of God. You have to stand for something. Judges chapter 2, verse 10, is being lived out right before our eyes. The people quit on God. They quit on Him. 1992, there was another question. Do you believe in moral absolutes? 70% of those who answered said yes. In 1972. It's kind of surprising to me. I'm sorry, just the opposite. Said they did not believe in moral absolutes. 70% did not believe in moral absolutes. You've got to decide one way or the other. Sometimes some things are right, some things, some things maybe. It's just kind of how you feel today. Right? Maybe? Kind of? Our children are taught there's no absolutes. There's no wrong answers. Nothing's right. Nothing's wrong. That means abortion, murder, drugs, alcohol use, premarital, extramarital sex. It's all all right. If you want to do it and it feels okay, it must be okay for you. You all get to make your own choices today. And I equate that to this. 
Most of you in here have been parents or your grandparents or you have something to do with kids. Are you really going to let that four-year-old decide whether they're going to cross the road or not? Are you going to take their hand and help them across? We aren't smart enough to know our way through this world. We need to hold the Lord's hand and let him take us across the road. We're his children. And he's not going to let us make choices that harm us. So he gave us his word. And he asked us to live in it. For our own sake. As well as for his. A recent survey said 57% of professing Christians do not believe in moral absolutes. And that means we are a mess. We have compromised our way and do not believe in anything. We need to surrender our swords. Sin must not be compromised with. And second, and this is a two-point message, so this is the second point. Sin's wages are crushing and God does not compromise. So I'm going to flip this around and tell you this. Sin will hurt you every time. Verses 3 and 4 of Judges chapter 2. As our moral fiber continued to tear and continues to tear, we see last day atrocities committed almost daily. Does it really surprise you to see four kids torturing a disabled child? And you know the sad part of that statement? Most of you aren't stunned. Most of us aren't shocked. We got a little bit of moral outrage, but we're not surprised. We are so used to this kind of nonsense that we see it as just kind of the way it is. That is called the result of sin. Sin's wages are death. God didn't change his mind on that. But guess, who, guess who's committing the death? I am. God loves you. God has created you. God gifted you with life. God said, I want the best for you. I want you, according to John chapter 3, to have eternal life. Man, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I love the next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. God loves you and God loves your life and God wants you to experience life with him. But the wages of sin is death. And that hadn't changed. God wants you to experience life, but people will choose death and they will choose death, and they will choose death until they spend an eternity in hell. Not because God wanted them there. God is pleading for everyone to be saved because they choose death. It is the wages of sin. A man walks into a church and kills members in South Carolina who were there for a prayer meeting. 750 murders in Chicago last year. Life is cheap. We've chosen death. Because the moral fabric of our nation continues to rip. Where there is no God, the people perish. So what happened? They endured divine sentence. Judges chapter 2, verse 3, God said, Have it your way, I will stop protecting you. I'll take my hand of protection off of you. Militarily, economically, culturally, God lifts his hands off of a nation and the nation struggles. 
to borrow a recent political phrase, we are deplorable as a nation. Us folks, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Second, verses four and five, because I got to end this, they expressed a very deep sorrow. And my question is this, so what? Every time a kid gets in trouble, he's sad. (laughs) Every single time. The nation felt bad, but it didn't lead to repentance. They felt bad because they were in trouble. They still did what was right in their own eyes. God did not abandon them. They abandoned God. And God still didn't abandon them because he would still send judges to save them, to get them out of the messes they kept getting themselves into. And still they would turn away from him every time. It's not enough to feel bad about sin. I have to repent. Third, they experienced a very deepening sin. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, and particularly verse 13, you know what it said? You remember seeing chapter 2, verse 13? This is what it said. It was very purposeful. They quit serving God, and they decided they were going to serve Baal. Wait a minute, I didn't need God. He's not doing anything for me anyway. I'm going the other way. Makes more sense for me. Bad things are happening in my life. God's not helping me. I'm just going to turn around and follow some other God. You've been doing that anyway. You're just making an excuse up now. And that's exactly what's going on. What do you suppose our church membership number is? First Baptist Church of Waterloo, 400? On the roll somewhere? How many of you supposed to come to church any given Sunday? That's an easy thing to do to come to church on Sunday. Who abandoned who? Hebrews 10, 31 says it is a difficult thing to fall into the hands of a living God. In fact, it's a terrible thing. So then how shall I live? And this is the conclusion to this first. First. God always makes a way of salvation. And probably most importantly, God knows all about our lifestyles. He knows our choices. He knows our failures. He knows our lost condition. He came to offer us new life. Where we have failed, where we have fallen into sin, where we have dying, God has offered us life. I love that. It is up to us to come to him in repentance. And so I asked that question, that old campus crusade question, I guess. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what's your answer? And the answer has to be, because I'm a sinner, and because I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And in his shed blood, and in his resurrection from the dead. And I don't have anything else to say, but I place my faith in Jesus. That's called salvation. If you've never made that decision, today is a day of salvation. We're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to sing a song. We're going to ask you if, you, if you need to come and make things right with God, come and pray. God won't force you or compel you, but he will plead with you. He'll ask you. It's always good to get right with God. Second, God loves life. 57 lives. 57, that's a small country. Cheaply 
tossed aside by a nation. And we want God's blessing? Standing for life means seeing others as God sees them. We stand for life. We stand for life to this degree, though. You have a friend, you have somebody in your family, they ended up in an unwanted pregnancy or an un <laughs> didn't know it was coming. You are responsible to make sure they have the best baby shower they ever saw, to make sure they have the best care they ever experienced, and to help them every step of the way. Because if you love life, you're responsible for that life. And we are responsible for each other every time. You see somebody in your congregation who's struggling with a sin, you're responsible to help them. Any sin. Why? Because you love them. We love the life they have. And we want to see them experience great life. Let's stand together, please. We'll end this with the pastor's question of last week. Have we surrendered our sword? Am I living a life that's worthy of the gospel? Did I get up this morning and say, Lord, I'm ready to follow you today? I'm going to do it. Help me. Will I surrender to him where maybe culturally we find some disagreements? There's a lot of areas we're going to have to struggle with. We stand on the word of God because we believe it to be true. We believe it to hold the words of life. We're here this morning. We need to make a decision. We need to be right with God. We see what happened to a nation that went from Joshua to Judges that said, I, I'm just not going to do it. And as they declined, God finally said, then have it your way. I want God's hand in my life. You need God's hand in your life. <laughs> Let's give our lives to him. Father, please help us as we, as we gather in worship today to worship, as we gather and, and sing songs of praise to praise, as we come and we are See each other the way you see them. Father, see, see each person. Father, help us to just love. I love you to love each other, to be, to be the people you've called us to be. Father, thank you that you are God and we are your sheep of your pasture. Thank you that you are king and we don't have to go this alone. Father, as we leave today, just to leave following you. And if we have a decision to make, Father, Please work in our hearts and help us. Help us, Father, to make that decision for you. And we pray in Jesus' name.